0: Hello and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe, and welcome back. Thank you. Connor, you, you missed last week. I did miss last week, I think. I don't know if you said that on the show. I didn't listen to last week's show.
1: I mentioned
0: briefly what, yeah why you were in Seattle. Yeah, it was a nice visit. Um, sad reason to go there, but good to be around family and to experience, yeah, or to celebrate the life of my grandma
1: with them. For the people who didn't hear last week, you, you were at your grandma's funeral.
0: Yes. Mm. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Good to be there. Good to be have done that. Good to be back again. I missed. I missed all of last week, and um, to get back kind of to business. You had an interview. There was one
1: interview last week that we talked about a lot that yeah, we set up I in advance. I mentioned this as well that it was a shame that you weren't here because we spoke about what, what not having um, something like a, a full time contract. Will do for your longevity, namely that it's thirty percent more likely if you don't have that full-time contract. If you if you're working in precarious work, that that you'll die early. Right? It's that serious. Tend to die early. Thirty percent higher chance that you I, will I die early if you're not if come if you com, if you move from standard work or sorry if you move from precarious work to standard work. So if you improve your working situation, the conditions that you're working in, the likelihood that you'll die early goes down by 30 percent
0: as someone who is working in precarious work i think most journalists out there would that's that's the job Mm -hmm. it's precarious for all sorts of reasons yeah what was the suggestion change it's gotta be change jobs so i should i
1: well that's yeah i i asked that question to nuria Mattia Santander uh, of the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, what I should do if I'm in precarious work. And she said, yeah, change your job, obviously. But she also had a, mi- a, a message for the employers out there. Change the conditions. And not only the employers, the governments, the international institutions. This is a really important thing. She mentioned the United Nations, and it's one of the sustainability goals by 2030, to eradicate this, get this out of our world. Change mm-hmm. the conditions that we're working in because it's killing us.
0: Yeah. I think that's something most of our listeners out there would probably agree with, that a, 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 a more, I was going to say sustainable, that's not the right word, a, a safer, a safer working environment or one that feels safe, where, um, where the stability of your job and your financial stability both kind of remain, I don't know, on track or they feel like they're on track. That's probably better. Yeah. Uh, ties in somewhat to one of the studies we're going to talk about now. Um, Going back to financial stability and really to a daydream, I think most of us have had at some point, whether you've bought a lottery ticket or you're just hoping for a windfall somehow, a rich benefactor to come your way. Mm. I think that's something all of us have sort of hoped will
1: happen. I have a feeling this ties in with an email that we got from Brent. Brent North. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Brent uh, is one of our longtime listeners, emails us frequently. And in this case, I'm wondering... Because the lead author of the study was based in the same city that he is. If there was like some, not, not, not a direct connection, but maybe it popped up in a local newspaper or mm. some local news on this one. And it was about what people do when they suddenly in, inherit money unexpectedly.
2: Hmm.
0: Uh, and I wasn't all that, I, I was, we get a lot of emails with a lot of study suggestions. Wasn't necessarily going to move on it. But then the same week I was on the the German a German subreddit. So on Reddit, but in German, it was the uh, Finanzen, where they discuss financial things. And, and this study is, what would
1: you do if you were given $10,000? Is that correct? Is that $10,000, yeah. You're yes. given $10,000, what do you do? And they, these scientists looked into what people would do? That was the question. What yeah. do
0: people actually do Okay. when they get a windfall? And yeah, it was a weird coincidence, because on this German subreddit, this guy got 600,000 euros, and he said he was feeling, quote, unquote, overwhelmed. It's like, well, that's it. It's a good reason to feel overwhelmed. Is he
1: still overwhelmed, or has he spent the six hundred thousand? He was
0: asking for financial advice. He, uh, he's going to throw it into something. This fintech company, basically, Trade Republic, is its name. It's an app, and they give you four percent returns on the money you throw in there. And he's like, what, "What should I do with it to make my money back?" And so here's a guy who's taken six hundred k and investing it, and that's one thing that people might do when they suddenly inherit money. But what do most of us do? That was that was the question of a really unique study, um, that I'll. I guess I'll get into now. So basically, the study was set up where two millionaires, ten uh, multimillionaires—I don't know—each one donated one million dollars. So you've got a two million dollar pot, mm-hmm. U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. And um, how many recipients? In total, two hundred. So each one's getting ten k. Ten grand. Okay. And what's interesting is how do you how do you advertise this? How do you get these people to sign up? Because if you if you tell them you're going to get ten k, you would have half of planet Earth signing up immediately, at least. So I'll show you the very first tweet uh, from TED. A lot of you are probably familiar with the TED media organization. They do the famous TED Talks. They've been doing them since 1984. And they have a, I don't even know what to call it now. Is it a Twitter account? No, it's an X account. And they posted back in December 2020, this really
1: um, enigmatic tweet. You can maybe read it there, Gabe. Okay, this is big. I'm recruiting people to participate in a one-of-its-kind social experiment. It will be exciting, surprising, somewhat time-consuming, possibly stressful, but possibly also life-changing with a big picture, question mark, mystery experiment. Yeah, the hashtag mystery experiment
0: is Mm -hmm. where you can kind of follow this whole story in addition to the actual scientific paper, which I'll get to in a second. So this was posted in December 2020. Uh, middle of the COVID pandemic, I think the first vaccines were being rolled out. A lot of people online, you had to be following this account or see that tweet. And you're like, what? Mystery experiment. Hmm. hmm. Maybe I should sign up. People signed up not knowing what it was. And 200 people like Willy Wonka got the 10 grand? The golden ticket. Yeah. Yeah. And they got this 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 email in their inbox. And um, I followed some of the tweets where people, they won, you know, they got through. Yeah. And some of them legitimately thought this was a scam operation that they were going to get tricked tricked into losing money. So it actually required the head of TED to send a personalized video saying, no, 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 this is real. You really are going to get a PayPal transfer okay. of $10,000. And okay. it's like, okay, so what are the conditions on this one? Yeah. Um, they had a select list of countries. First of all, the US, the UK, Canada, and Australia in the list of high-income con- countries.
1: English-speaking world, yeah, okay.
0: And the other ones were Indonesia, Brazil, and kenya okay so you had to be in those countries and then you were split up into two groups so 100 in one group 100 in the other so in the one group they're going to give you 10k and you just have to fill out these surveys at month one month two month three and month six how are you spending the cash how are you spending what are you doing with it and you had to get rid of all of it by month three month three that was one of the conditions Mm. one of the other conditions you had to have at least 100 followers on twitter so this is really or x i'm out X. You, oh, you, you're not even... Do you have one? <laughs> okay. Do you have one follower? Get back to the sides. So it, you, a couple conditions there, but once you met them, you got the cash transfer. In group one, do whatever you want, just fill out the surveys. Group two, do whatever you want with it, fill out the surveys, but tweet about it. Uh-huh. And that was kind of the point, I would say, of this study. Do people... First of all, what do they do when they suddenly get a windfall? Yeah. And secondly, do they behave differently with that money if they know... They're going to publicly talk about it.
1: Okay, well, what did the first group do? The ones who didn't have to tweet about it?
0: Um, If if you're going to group them both together, and that's what the authors did, and it does make the most sense, most of them, uh, their official number is most of them gave away most of their money. Really? Which is crazy when you think that for some of these people in the countries where let's say the average dual income in a household is a hundred thousand dollars pay off
1: your debt yeah
0: right but so if, if you're making like if you're living with someone and together you make a hundred thousand dollars this is 10 percent more than you would make so it's a nice it's nice mm-hmm. but it's not completely life-altering in some of the other countries where the average income might be eight thousand a year this is more than double your annual salary and yet amongst everyone they basically did the same things which is an indication that they that human beings kind of operate the same way when they get this windfall. Mm-hmm. So of the 10,000 on average it was 6400 6400 went to other people donated uh, of well went to other people 1700 was donated to charities mm-hmm. so really giving it away yeah. truly giving it away i think some people might say that's that is what donation is in that sense and the other 5000 was given to a friend or uh, friends, fam- family family members, sure. colleagues, somebody, somebody in need that they happen to know. Um, and yeah, together, all in all, that was 6,400. What I found interesting is if you dive into the data, there were some differences between the group that posted or that had to post or were supposed to post about what they did. Um, if you were going public with the information about what you did, you tended to straight up donate to charities which might tie into the fact that there is there is sort of some... Altruism, but only if people are watching, right? Self-interested yeah. altruism. It yeah. feels really good when people know I'm a good person, doesn't yeah. it? it I like special. when they know that Connor's yeah. so nice and he's so <laughs> generous and so whatever. And just to, to be clear, that number, it was like, if you were privately doing whatever you wanted with the money, you gave 15% to charities. If you had to be public about it and let everyone know, that number jumps up to 23%.
1: So that was the main takeaway then, that people give or are more willing to give if the rest of the world is watching. That was the insight.
0: No, they're, they're more willing to give to charities if people are watching. But in general, they're very generous. Okay. Very surprisingly generous. It rejects the idea that we all kind of have had instilled in us. Homo economicus, Adam Smith. You know the free hand of the market. I'm a, I'm a selfish, greedy individual. I'm going to take that money and
1: run. Yeah, that's not what happens. Utilitarianism all the way to the end. And yeah, right at the, self-serving.
0: Yeah. Right at the end of their, uh, their research paper. Again, this was published in Psychological Science. You can read it yourself. Who cares? You could kind of argue. I'm not going to get. I'm not going to win the lottery. Hmm. Right. I don't think so. I hope I do, but I'm probably not going to. No, you're
1: probably not going to win it. No.
0: What they're saying is, uh, although receiving $10,000 as a windfall does not happen every day, as much as $36 trillion U.S. dollars will be passed down to future generations as gifts in the form of inheritances over the coming decades in the United States alone. This experiment not only informs our theoretical understanding of generosity, but also carries the hopeful implication that this massive intergenerational transfer of wealth could be passed on for the common good. It gives us an idea of what people do with it and really how happy it makes us and how how good it feels to... To be able to share it with other people, and it's it's kind of we don't talk about, about a lot of hopeful studies hmm. or like like inspiring, optimistic. But I I thought that one fit into the pattern of them or the relatively few studies like that. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Connor. Thank you, Brent. And I guess the question for the listeners: What would you do with ten grand? Well, they might do. Or are you? Yeah. Would you? Are you surprised that people actually are giving to others? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and and would they would they be like? My favorite participant in the study, who was nowhere to be found, and this was buried deep in the scientific paper, one participant failed to complete any surveys, data missing. So whoever he or she was- Did he get the money? Got a $10,000 PayPal transfer and was like, joke's on you, I'm out of (laughs) here. And so it's not actually 200 people, it's 199. and Some others only spent 1,000, four of them. And then they had nine k left. And when the study. what did Ted? What did Ted do? Did they t- force them to pay him back? I don't think so. Well, they probably saved it. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. kind of. I bank, mean, I guess some, that's an active some, some
1: thing. A s- lot, a lot of, a lot what of different. What would you have done with ten grand?
0: Ah, uh, <sighs> real quick. I, I, I have no va- vacation with my family would be part of it. Where are you going? I'd, I'd say half. Um, it would have to be a place that we. I don't know, the Maldives. Someplace like that would, it's like too luxurious and too out of budget. Maybe an African safari, something that's expensive, prohibitively expensive, but now we can finally do it. But that would be like half of it. It's funny because I think I would have done, okay, five, you know, five for me and then five, let's do something good. Let's do something, I don't know.
1: Mm -hmm. What would you do? Uh, I don't know. No idea. Okay. Good answer. Let me see. Go to the movies. (laughs) (laughs) The movies, plural. That's it for now. Bye. No. (laughs) Email us with your... Oh, yeah. Email. Oh, yeah. If you guys want to know, then su at (laughs) dw.com. That's how we do it. Real quick question for you guys: Do you think it's a good idea to learn a little bit about a scientific topic so that you know enough about it to think you know something about it?
0: Well, that's what our, I think our our listeners do every week or multiple times per week with us and with this show, which seems great. I think it's great. It's it's the the foundational premise. Of this entire enterprise here and you yet... are
1: absolutely wrong <laughs> and yet <laughs> you are absolutely wrong based on a study that we're going to get into now with Joanna Conchalves from Lisbon Portugal it it's not a it's not a good thing to have moderate knowledge about scientific topics
0: well it depends on where that knowledge is coming from
2: science unscripted okay So hi, my name is Joana Gonçalves de Sá, I'm a researcher in Portugal and we have just published a study on how confidence varies with knowledge. So most people will have moderate knowledge, of course. Most people do not have almost no knowledge, or and uh, they are not experts either. But what happens is that what, what we found is that confidence grows much faster than knowledge. So you get a little knowledge and a lot of confidence. So it becomes very easy for people with intermediate um, levels of knowledge to have uh, overconfidence over their own knowledge and understanding of issues.
0: So let's say I've just picked up a book from the library, and it's on... I'm trying to think of a kind of complex topic. Dark matter and dark energy in the cosmos. I read that book. Now I kind of have moderate knowledge and and what happens. I think I'm I'm kind of an expert or I'm I'm way too confident about what I think I know.
2: So congratulations to you for picking up books from the library. (laughs) And uh, what I would say is that um, if you get a very technical book, you will probably realize that you don't understand it. Right? So it probably will not increase your confidence by a lot. It might even destroy your confidence in what you think about you, uh, about how much you understand about some issue. But if you, for instance, read a report or listen to a podcast where things are made very simple and you try to make it, uh, um, very complex matters very, very simple, then maybe your confidence is going to increase a lot and you gain just a little bit of knowledge, but you think, oh, this is actually easy. I got it. I understand that matter now.
1: How exactly did you conduct the, the experiment?
2: If you know the answer to a question, let's say the earth revolves around the sun, and if you know the, if it's true or false, you should answer correctly. Okay? If you do not know, you should say, I don't know. But if you think you know, when you don't know, you answer incorrectly. So you use these incorrect answers as a way to uh, infer overconfidence. It's this idea of like, you think you know, but you actually don't. Uh, of course, so because, look-
0: b- because they do have the option of saying, I don't know. And they're not saying yes. that. They're, they're overconfidently saying yes or no, when in fact, they don't know. <laughs> Therefore, they yes. truly
1: believe that they know, but they don't.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, and the, the idea is that a purely rational machine, let's say, would either say the right answer or don't know, but would not just guess wrongly. Or really be not even guessing, like sometimes people really think that they know the, the answer, but they're wrong. And so we looked at, uh, I think, around 90,000 surveys over 30 years in very in different European countries and in the United States. And the people in the low knowledge levels, they were much, much more likely to say don't know, and in the high knowledge levels as well. But then there was this intermediate knowledge level where people were almost, they, they almost never said don't know. And they, they guessed incorrectly.
0: I know it wasn't the purpose of of this research, but what do you think is a solution for this, for this, for this uh, valley of of overconfidence and scientific skepti- skepticism? How do we get through that? How do we how do we avoid that as people learn more about various scientific topics?
2: I think there are three things that we can do. Okay, So the first one is to understand that when we get some scientific knowledge, because from science communicators or from journalists, it's already really simplified. Okay, So we need to be able to explain not only the results, but also how much work it took for us to get there. So the technicalities, the difficulties, all of the scientific part of the work. The second part is that we need to be able to balance the knowledge with some uh, humility and this goes for scientists and it goes for for everyone is this idea that this is difficult and that I don't understand be able to say make it easier for people to say publicly I don't know I don't understand uh, I have to think more about it and the third one is really to value more how deep we have to go into a subject to really understand it and the the going to the library and learning something completely new and uh, and just Going through it because it's hard and because it's difficult, and not just thinking that teaching critical thinking is enough for me to for me to be able to comment on something. Just being critical doesn't mean that I'm knowledgeable.
1: Before we go, Joanna, I've got a question. I I don't really know how to ask it because this show is maybe part of the problem. Well, this from 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 what. This conversation we're having with Joanna is—we try and make things as simple and understandable as possible. Is that not a good thing?
2: I think it's a good thing in one uh, for one aspect, but I I think it's important. And this is for me as well, as a scientist and a science communicator. We need to also be able to explain that it's hard and that it's complex and that it's difficult and that it's okay. It's fine to be difficult. It's fine to try harder.
0: And how do you feel? Because we are ending this interview. Right now with this question, have, have, have we done this right? Have you done this right? Have we oversimplified 90,000 surveys and 30 years worth of research in, in a couple of minutes here on, in, you know, on a podcast radio show?
2: We've definitely simplified it. <laughs> and we're, we're definitely never doing it right. We just keep getting better.
1: That was Joanna Conchalves speaking to us from Lisbon, Portugal. Yeah, and if you're out there wondering right now
0: whether or not you are in that moderate knowledge category, uh, the answer is you are.
1: You absolutely are because everyone is.
0: Everyone is. She, <laughs> Joanna said that, that to us at the end after we'd stopped recording. She said, look, you know, I'm an expert in one field. I'm not in the others, and there I have moderate knowledge. We, outside of our, our areas, possibly plural, of expertise, we have moderate knowledge, and that's a fact. We're all in that
1: category somewhere. We try, yeah. And we, we asked a personal question to Joanna there. It, did we dumb it down too much? Did we oversimplify? What do you guys think? I mean, that's fair enough, right? We, you probably listened to us take a number of very complex topics and, and make them as understandable as possible. Do we dumb it down too much?
0: That's, that's a fair question. It's the question that needs to be asked at the end of this interview. As always, su at dw.com.
2: Science Unscripted.
0: In Hawaii, the official death toll has fallen from the devastating wildfire on Maui last month. The state's governor, Josh Green, tells CNN fewer than 100 people have died and nearly
3: three dozen people... Libya
1: is struggling to deal with the thousands of bodies being recovered in the aftermath of devastating floods. Overwhelmed officials have registered nearly 4,000 deaths, a number that's expected to rise as more bodies are found.
0: Kind of a morbid topic here for you now. And in studio to talk with us about that today is our DW colleague, Carla Bleicher.
3: Hi. Hey,
0: Carla. Carla, uh, we've had a number of major natural catastrophes within the last months. And uh, obviously significant death tolls. But you're here today to talk to us about how it's ever possible as those numbers keep climbing, the deaths keep climbing, that they end up going down.
3: That's right. Um, in both the Maui wildfire and in the floods in Libya, authorities have actually adjusted those those death toll numbers down significantly. M-
1: meaning that they found what DNA or some some kind of marker from more bodies than they thought. Or, I mean, how do you how do you make that mistake and say that there are more bodies than there actually are?
3: It's. Uh, I was surprised too, but what I've learned is that that is actually not unusual um, at all. So, in, in the first day after such disasters, of course, you know the numbers keep going up and up and up, because you um, you get to areas that you maybe previously haven't been able to access, or you you find what uh, what you think might be uh, more more remains from more bodies. Well, and
0: also I'm I guess is that pessimism when I see. You know, a few thousand confirmed dead, and let's say that same number missing. My assumption is typically, if is that the missing are probably also gone, that they've that they've died as well. But this
1: is a case where, it, let's take the example of Hawaii, in particular. Right, it went from 115 down to 97.
3: Right, and
1: what led to the 115?
3: what what they say is at least, right? So it's at least 115 was what they first, or what they eventually landed at, and now they've adjusted it to at least 97. So numbers might still change a little bit, um, but what happened was the fire mostly just left charred remains, right? So not not whole bodies. So experts went in and they collected all the remains that they could find. Um, and in, in many cases, they collected remains that were kind of close together, um, but they initially assumed they were from two different people. And they 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 did their, their forensic analysis and turns out actually they were from one person. So that's one way that the number could go down. Um, and another thing is that they collected remains assuming that they were human and then it turned out they were actually from from an animal in most cases, pets, and so that's another way they, um, another reason they had to adjust that number downward.
1: When no fingerprints can be found and no teeth can be found, so the only thing that forensic scientists have to go with is DNA. Can DNA break down?
3: So even if there's a fire, a lot of the times, um, what what will remain are teeth, for example. So. You, you won't be able to do a dental dental profile because it's, you know, not not that whole structure is there anymore, but there might still be single teeth um, and you can actually get DNA um, from inside your molars, for example. Really? Yeah. So so that is that is one place that researchers often go. Ideally, you will you will have Some bones, um, really long ones are good, uh, like uh, your femur, for example, and they will get DNA from inside the bone because it's it's protected there right inside the bone if the bone still exists.
0: And then even if I as a family member don't have any of that missing family member's DNA, let's say strands of hair, for example, uh, they could still sequence the DNA And with relatively high accuracy, say this person is a sibling of yours, an uncle of yours, an aunt of yours and connect them back to you.
3: That's right. When family members come in to to report that, you know, their father or their daughter or their brother is missing. um, Of course, you know, they, they, they hand in photographs and they might have a toothbrush or a hairbrush. But even if they don't, they themselves will give a DNA sample, and then exactly as you said, um they use that for comparison to see if someone is if if someone they find is related to that person and then identify them that way.
0: Is there anything hopeful about this situation? It's a morbid topic it's it's oh, hard to
1: it's sad to talk about to, to even imagine the situation. Well, I mean, how about the closure that it brings to the to the loved yeah. ones missing?
3: absolutely different forensic experts that that i've talked to they said sure many of these stories don't have happy endings but it is so important for the relatives to to get that closure so to get the information that yes uh, we found your daughter's remains and eventually it can take a very long time in the case of the uh the tsunami um just to identify those people who had died in Thailand, which was one of, I think, fourteen countries where people had died, uh, took almost twelve months. But uh, if at the end of it you can say we found your family member's remains, people are are very grateful. And one of the one of the forensic doctors that I spoke with, he was in Thailand um, during this process, helping to to identify the the thousands of of dead people. And he said, on the plane back, family members came up to him and were saying, we are so grateful. Thank you for identifying my child. Thank you for identifying my father, my brother, because this way I at least have something to take home and bury.